Well, good morning. My name is Jim, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and we are going to be continuing our series, actually ending our series, in, in asking the question, uh, where is God? And, and we have asked, uh, where is God in sort of our difficult circumstances? And we've talked about where is God uh, in our pain. We have talked about where is God in uncertainty. And today, uh, we are going to be talking about where is God in conflict? Where is God in conflict. Um, I don't know if, you, if you've done this or, or if you heard of this or if you think this is a good idea at all, but my wife and I every now and then have been reminded of, of sort of these things that we sometimes see in people's, fam- in, in people's homes when you sort of come in uh, or you hear about families that have this, but they have like values of theirs, things that they say as a family, these are important things to us uh, and this is what matters. And, and, and my wife and I appreciate this because we think that Uh, and maybe you know this too, there's so many things that you can do as a family, there's so many things as an individual, you don't have to be a family to to know that there's so many things to do, there's so many things that you can give your your time to, uh, that it's good to sort of have some kind of sense to know what it is that you should be dedicating yourself towards, what kind of practices you want to see in in your... (laughs) home and in your life and all those sorts of different things. And so uh, we've, we've talked about it to a certain degree, uh, my family and I, and, and, and one of the things that we've kind of landed on that would be a high value of ours uh, is the value of peace, that peace is a high value for us as a family. So, so we want our home to be uh, a place of peace. We ourselves want to be uh, people of peace and helping others uh, with that as well. And what I've noticed actually too within my own life is that um, it's, it's a value for us because when it's not there, it really hurts and it's really hard. So one of the things that I always struggle with is when my kids start to fight. Uh, we know that kids fight, that's a pretty normal thing. Uh, and so, but when our kids start to fight and, and, uh, and I maybe see that one person has a better argument than the other and, but they're not hearing it out and I feel like I should maybe step in and sort of help things out and I actually begin to feel uh, my emotions well up myself because it's just like I want uh, the bickering or the whining or, or whatever to just end and, and maybe it's because I'm selfish and I just don't want to hear that but I would like to think that it's because, well, peace is such a high value and we know that we want to work through stuff. Uh, my wife has figured out that if you just let the kids fight it out a little bit, <laughs> then uh, it kind of goes away sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes it does, and we don't have to step in as much as we need to. You know, conflict in relationships, conflict within family, conflict within the world is inevitable, right? That, that the closeness of people to other people uh, will likely bring about disagreement. Eventually, it will bring about disagreement. And so within our kids, you know, we love that they get along so much and it hurts us when we see them not getting along, but we know that it's normal uh, and that it's a natural thing. And so one of the things we've tried to do is to help them uh, to teach them how to resolve the conflict and not just kind of stay within that. Uh, and this is a difficult thing. It's difficult to acknowledge and, and to admit that, that conflict is inevitable and that to a degree conflict is normal because conflict feels very dangerous. Conflict is something that feels threatening to an individual. Uh, when, we, when my wife and I talk with 
uh, couples that are about to be married for premarital counseling, one of the things that we talk about with them is to say, like, you will fight. It is normal for couples to fight. How you go about it and how you come through it is a very, very important thing. And that you don't bring in, you know, things from the past that have already been resolved. There are certain ways in which you can fight fair, and there are ways in which it's unfair to fight. And so we would try to teach uh, fair ways to fight, which would help you not feel so uh, threatened by, by what is going on. Um, and so, you know, conflict is something that's inevitable, and it feels uh, incredibly dangerous within, within life, though. And conflict actually is dangerous. That because of conflict, you can see that there are relationships that are torn apart, that divorces come about, that children become estranged from their parents, that siblings refuse to talk to one another anymore, that churches split apart from one another, that you uh, have a stressful workplace, or you begin uh, moving from job to job because you haven't maybe figured out how to resolve conflict well, that conflict is something that hurts and destroys us on the inside, uh, and it affects all of the people around us. If you yourself have been in conflict with another person that is not easily or quickly resolved, then you know that you can focus so much of your time and attention uh, onto that incident. There are a multiple, you know, number of reasons as to why conflict happens. Uh, some of these are incredibly valid, and some of them are, are less valid than others. Sometimes we have personality differences with people. Uh, sometimes we have uh, differences in our beliefs, whether it be faith or whether it be values even, what our philosophy of life, what it is that we feel should happen, uh, or whether it's more of a, a religious kind of faith thing. Uh, sometimes you know, conflict happens because of misunderstanding. Sometimes conflict happens because of history. Sometimes conflict happens because of my own uh, or our own past hurts and struggles that we haven't resolved that kind of keep playing out in relationships as they go along and along and along. And sometimes conflict happens because of expectations, unrealistic expectations that we have of others, unspoken expectations that we have of a, of a certain situation, or maybe even unrealized expectations that we have of ourselves. And these things, if we don't uh, acknowledge them and deal with them, or, or even just notice them, they can uh, lead us into uh, incredible destructive conflict with other people. And so this is a normal aspect of life. It doesn't have to be as destructive as so often conflict is, but conflict is normal. And we want to ask the question this morning, where is God in conflict? Where is God when we are in conflict with those who are around us, whether people we are close to uh, by choice or whether people that we are close to uh, because we have to be maybe for work or whatever it might be. And hear me when I... Listen to me, if you haven't been listening or, or you've already tuned me out, just listen to me for one more second here and then maybe you'll choose to invest again. Um, I know that there would probably be people in this room who have conflict with one another. The people who would have conflict with me. And I'm not directly speaking to any situation that, that we have experienced or that you have experienced. I wanted just to acknowledge that conflict is normal and that conflict happens and that we actually need to address conflict and talk about conflict because if we never talk about it, 
uh, it will become difficult to move through. But I'm not speaking to any particular situation. Conflict in general is what I am talking about, and so please do not take this um, personally as we continue moving forward. Okay. <laughs> that probably didn't help anything. <laughs> but we'll move on. Where is God in conflict? Where is God in the conflict that we face within life? Have you heard of the Christmas truce of, of World War I? I read about this just the other day. Like, I'm sure that I've, I've heard about it before and then completely forgotten about it. Um, but I just read about this the other day, and it fascinated me. The Christmas truce of World War I um, was a truce that took place as you would uh, assume from the, from the name of it, on Christmas, uh, I believe in 1914, and it was, in, uh, it was between uh, German and British forces, is what I understand. And they were uh, in, in trenches on the front lines uh, that on Christmas, the, the event that sort of took place, and, and it's kind of not sure as to you know, how widespread this was or, or what is truth and what is myth or whatnot. But the, the story goes uh, is that on Christmas that the, you know, the, each side were, were began singing uh, maybe Silent Night or some sort of Christmas song and that they actually then eventually, uh, as they were singing and there was a ceasefire that happened, some actually came out of their trenches uh, and met in the middle and exchanged gifts and, and, and pleasantries and all that sort of stuff. Actually had like a form of community with people that they had been earlier uh, trying to kill and would later uh, be, be trying to kill as well. But there was this form of community that took place uh, in, in warfare. What was interesting in, in what I read, I mean, that event in and of itself is, is fascinating that someone would even risk stepping out of a trench uh, to go and see if, you know, someone would take a gift from them because it's Christmas time and there was something that they had in common in, in, in their belief of the season. But what was interesting and fascinating about the account that I read was that they were sort of asking the question, well, why did this happen or how did this happen? And what the author pointed to was the, the closeness of the trenches that there were places in the front lines where the trenches were probably maybe from, from me to you apart. And, and that people were just kind of ducked down in and, and, you know, there were those different places in the line where when there was no shooting, when there was a bit of silence, you could uh, hear uh, the words that other people were saying. Maybe you didn't understand the language, but you heard. You could smell uh, the smells from the cook fires. You uh, began hearing when the, the rhythm of the life happened, like when, you know, the, the patrols would shift and, and meals were served, and, and there began to be sort of a commonality and an understanding because they began to see or understand, like, oh, okay, they have a rhythm of life, actually, that's kind of similar to our rhythm of life. And then before the Christmas truce actually happened, people did begin singing songs back and forth to one another. That there were, you know, different songs, maybe sung in, in Latin was what I read, that, that both would sing, that they both understood, and because they experienced this together, there was this sense of commonality and community that they had, which enabled them to feel as though there was trust there, 
that there had been trust signals kind of sent back and forth to one another. Apparently a sniper from the German side who would always uh, shoot his last shot, they called it his goodnight kiss at 9.15 and then he wouldn't shoot again until the next morning. And that these different things that the, that the groups kind of picked up on um, as, they, as they experienced that with one another. And so it was actually the closeness, the proximity that they had to one another uh, that enabled them to be able to step out of those trenches and to experience what it is we, uh, we know as the Christmas truth of world, truce of World War I. And this backed up one of the other things that I had read recently, which said that it is um, harder to hate someone close up that it is much harder for us to hate another person when we are close to them. That when we are far away from another person, when we don't know them, when, we don't, when we're not around them, we truly don't understand them. We have a habit and a tendency to begin telling ourselves stories about other people. We can tell ourselves stories about the intentions that people have. We can tell ourselves stories about why it is that somebody did the thing that they did, what is behind their actions, what is in their heart, yet we really don't know. But we begin to believe these stories as truth, um, and then that is how we then begin to see that person. And so what I have read and what I am beginning to challenge myself with and try to understand is the closer you get to another person, you enable yourself to stop telling stories about them and you begin to or can begin to understand them. This is why I actually believe that gossip is so deadly. Because we tell one-sided stories from afar about another person to people who may not be connected to that person or because of the one-sided story that we've told them will then step away and distance themselves from the other person. And as they distance themselves and as we distance ourselves with gossip and with hateful comments, uh, we make it so much easier for us uh, to hate those people that we're talking about. Acts chapter 9 verses 10 to 19, I think, gives us one picture of where it is that we would see God within conflict. And there's going to be a multitude of places, just like in all the things we've talked about, where we can see God, where we can experience God, where God would be. Uh, but we're focusing in on two today, two passages, two kind of principles. And the first one is Acts chapter 9, verses 10 to 19. And this is, I think I just mentioned it a few weeks back, but I didn't give it too much time, and so I wanted to bring it up again. But this is the story of, of Saul's conversion. Saul uh, was a, a religious leader, a zealous religious leader, uh, in the, uh, just after Jesus had been killed, when, uh, when the disciples were now going and, and, and taking the message, they'd been filled uh, with the Holy Spirit and were preaching and the church was growing and spreading and Saul was one who was really unhappy about it and he wanted permission and was given permission to go out and persecute the church to uh, chase them down to imprison them and, and, and maybe even kill some of them as well and so Saul was actually out to destroy the church because he saw it as not from God and not for God it was it was blasphemy in his actions of trying to destroy the church on his way from one place to another, the road to Damascus, it says, he uh, was met by Jesus, that Jesus appeared to him in a blinding light that, that literally blinded Saul. And Jesus spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you 
persecuting me. Saul's thrown off by this, and, and, and Jesus sort of says, this is who I am. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. By persecuting my church, you are persecuting me. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. This is all before, um, before the part that we are going to look at a little more uh, in depth. And so Saul, being blind, was then led um, to Damascus, and he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. And now this part is what I want us to focus on. Now there's a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. And the Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Taurus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But, Lord, exclaimed Ananias, not just said, but exclaimed, (laughs) right, okay, but Lord. Do we know why he's saying but Lord at this point in time? Saul has been persecuting the church. He is now somewhere praying, uh, which is what Ananias has been told, and, and God says to Ananias, go and see this man who maybe has imprisoned uh, some of the people you have known and was maybe on his way actually to imprison uh, you as he was on his way to Damascus. But go and uh, go meet with him and uh, pray with him. It's going to be good. But Lord, <laughs> exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. And Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. So Paul, sorry, Saul, who then changed his name later to Paul, had an encounter with Jesus. And he was changed by Jesus. That is something that we know. But what is so fascinating in this passage is that Saul needed to have an encounter with Jesus' followers too that I think someone can have an encounter with Jesus and be changed, yet not have a positive attitude towards the rest of his people, which they are now a part of as a family member. They can have a, non, uh, a, a non-positive attitude towards the church. And in the case of Saul, the church would have had a really terrible image of who he was, and he probably needed himself to experience grace and experience mercy and experience, and experience healing and blessing from their hand. That Saul actually needed to have an encounter with Jesus' followers. He needed to have that closeness to another Christian to know that there was some safety, to know that there was a connection that could be made. And then it says that Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, something that Ananias made possible, that he was sort of that first one kind of through the door uh, to make that connection happen so that the church could encounter Saul as somebody who was newly changed and that they could then 
trust him uh, as he was to take a place of significance uh, within the community of Christianity. So as I read this and I ask the question, where is God in conflict? It's clear that God is with us if we are in conflict or if he is asking us, uh, that God is with us as we are facing conflict. But what I think uh, I can see very clearly in this passage is that God is standing beside and maybe even within the one or the group that we are in conflict with and that he is calling us over. That I think that is where God is in conflict and that we will encounter him most powerfully as we draw near to the other person with courage and compassion, with faith and humility. Now let me say this is not an easy place to encounter Jesus. It's not. This is not actually a place that <laughs> it feels really good to go to. It actually feels a lot like death. Because to go is in, in a lot of ways to let go of your rights, is to let go of your anger, is to let go of your pain. Not ignoring those things, but giving those things over to God who is the judge of all. and going where it is that he has called us to go. And Jesus says that we are to turn the other cheek. That when somebody asks for our, for our cloak, we are to give our shirt as well. That when somebody forces us to walk a mile, that we are then to act and to walk that extra mile. That we are to move into these situations that we would not necessarily want to go into. But we can struggle in this, and I think that it is perfectly natural to struggle within this, which is where I think the second picture of where Jesus is or where God is in conflict is very important for us to acknowledge. So I truly believe that in conflict, we will encounter God very, very powerfully as we go uh, to the person we are in conflict with. And I think that the motivation for being able to go, the reason that we know that we can, the reason that we know that we should, we can find in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 uh, to 47. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 47. And it says this, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair, and then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. And then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. 
Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has wiped them with her tears. She's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, Your sins are forgiven. I think this story is really key for our having the courage and having the ability to go and having the compassion to go and approach people that we are in conflict with. To maybe try again or try for the tenth time or try for the fiftieth time if it's those family members that we just can't seem to get along with, those co-workers or those people in our lives. Because what Jesus is saying here is that we have been forgiven much. He's not really saying to the Pharisee, like, you've only been forgiven a little, and this woman's been forgiven a lot. He's not really saying, like, she is a much worse sinner than you. I think what we would look to and we would see from other places in Scripture that what is going on here is that she knows what she's been forgiven of. The Pharisee doesn't. The Pharisee doesn't remember or doesn't realize or doesn't see what it is that he has been forgiven of. What we see within in, in the book of Romans, as a reminder to all of us, is that everyone has sinned. Just like the verse that, the verse that was spoken from Isaiah earlier. Everybody has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet, God freely and graciously declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. That we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that sin is not actually, it, it doesn't seem like from the perspective of God or from the perspective of Scripture that sin doesn't seem to be like a spectrum. Sin doesn't seem to have uh, like different kinds of severity and weight on it. It seems that all sin is kind of given the same weight. And so whether we feel like we have sinned a little or we know that we have sinned a lot, I think that Jesus is telling us we're all guilty and that we have all been forgiven much as we have turned to Jesus and given our lives over to him. And so the second picture, I think, of where God is in conflict is that he's on the cross, that he is canceling our debts, that he is forgiving our sins, reminding us that we are all people who have been forgiven much and that we have been reconciled to him. And this next part we all need to hear. Because there are so many passages 
that speak to the religious people, those who have been in church most of their lives, that tell us that it is so easy for us to forget where we've come from. To forget what it is that God has forgiven us of. When one of the stories when, when the Pharisees confronted Jesus about the people that he was spending time with, the, the sinners, the bad people, Jesus said, well, healthy people don't need a doctor. Like, I'm here for those who know that they are sick. When he tells a story about a, a Pharisee and a tax collector praying, and the Pharisee prays and he says, oh God, thank you for not making me like these other people, uh, and the tax collector says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That Jesus lifts up the tax collector's prayer as the good and righteous one, as the right one. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35, Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving debtor. When Peter asks, Lord, how many times should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? And Jesus says, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And then he tells the story of, of a man who owed millions of dollars that he could never repay and that he was going to be taken in and, and punished and then he went to uh, the one who he owed the money to and he begged for forgiveness. And the king whom he owed the money to uh, forgave him that debt. Let him, let him not pay it and sent him off. And then the man, as he was then freed, found someone who owed him still a significant amount of money, but far, far less than he himself had owed the king. And he demanded that money back. The man couldn't pay it. He had asked for forgiveness and, and mercy. Give me some more time. But this uh, first man threw him in jail. And then servants uh, of the king found out about that and went and told him, and, and the king was so upset. And he called in the man he had forgiven in verse 32 and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. we need to remember that we have been forgiven much and that we must be willing to forgive. Whether that means full reconciliation, whether that means letting go because you have forgiven but the other person hasn't really made an opportunity for there to be any kind of reconciliation or whether it's moving into a place where you will begin to, uh, with genuine love, pray for the person that you used to hate. We need to remember what it is that we have been forgiven so that we can properly enter into uh, the conflict that we face and the conflict that we experience that we can enter in with the grace and mercy that Jesus so often shows us and that we wish other people would show us. 
we need to be willing to show other people. So today we come and we practice communion together. And this is such an important practice in what it is that we've just talked about. Because the communion table is where we come to remember what Christ has done for us in choosing to die, choosing that his body would be broken, uh, choosing that his blood would be spilled for us, all so that we could be made right with God and so that we would continue to carry out his ministry of reconciliation uh, of people to God uh, and of people to one another. And so as, as you prepare yourself to take communion, I want to invite the, uh, the worship team uh, to come forward and those who are uh, helping to serve to come forward as well.